What's up? And welcome to the Very Best Self Podcast. I'm your host, Victoria Brown. Tune in each week as I have candid conversations with inspiring humans, including athletes, entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and anyone out there making waves. Get ready to leave your comfort zone behind, step into your power, and live a more purpose-driven life. I am so happy that you're here. Now let's do this. I am so honored to share this episode with you today. I just finished interviewing Kate, and so I'm circling back to do the intro right now. And you guys, she is an incredible human. And Kate Fagan is an Emmy award-winning journalist and New York Times bestselling author. Uh, Today, we are talking about her book, All the Colors Came Out. And it is a story. It is a memoir um, about her relationship with her dad and his battle with ALS and with his love for basketball and their shared love for basketball and the many life lessons that he taught her throughout her childhood and her lifetime through the game of basketball. And I fell in love with this book. And I mean that from the bottom of my heart. And we're going to talk about so much today, unpacking what it means to just really live an intentional life, to live a purposeful life, uh, career-wise, relationship-wise, so many different aspects of the way that we show up in the world and how we can do that intentionally. So that's what today is going to be all about. And I can't wait for you to hear Kate's take on this incredible journey that she's been on. And uh, I hope that after listening to this episode today, you feel called to get this book. And I do not say it lightly. And I am not saying it just to say it, but it's an incredible story, an incredible book, and you should absolutely get it. But let's just get into the interview now so I can share all of the goodness with you. Here we go. All right, you guys, I have the honor and the pleasure today to have Kate Fagan on. She is the author of All the Colors Came Out, among what made Maddie run. Uh, But today we're going to talk mostly about All the Colors Came Out, which is her newest book. And I... (laughs) I, I truly mean that from the bottom of the heart when I from the bottom of my heart when I say the honor and pleasure of chatting with you today. So my godmother, mm-hmm. Coco, who is our mutual friend, uh, was like, You gotta read this book. So she sends it to me. And I'm like, Yeah, yeah, okay, whatever. So I pop it in my headphones and I go to take my dog for a walk and I am sobbing. <laughs> Uh, yeah. And Hopefully my mom's forward got you. <laughs> yes. Your mom's forward. I'm like happy tears, but like sad. It's like a whole mixture. It's like a really good cry. It's like a, yeah. a release, a cathartic, like, and I'm walking the dog and I'm just like, whoa. And then from then on, it's like everything that I did for the last month in New York City, I had you in my ears <laughs> talking to me and listening to your memoir and about the stories of you and your dad. And uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, his battle with ALS and how that affected your family. So I want to just say thank you so much for being on today. And thank you for writing such an incredibly beautiful book. Oh, well, thank you. Thanks for taking the time to listen to it, to consume it. Cause I know, 
I think books in general right now are, it's hard for the focused attention and, and how valuable our time is. It's just, it's an honor when people even take the time to read it or listen to it because it's quite obviously a very special book to me, given that it is essentially at its core, a love letter to my dad. Yeah, it was, it's, it's unbelievable. And I will shout it from the rooftops to anyone right. and everyone who wants to hear, like, you have to read this book. I'm, I'm, I was so moved. It was, it was just such a beautiful thing. So, so where to even begin? Um, you know, I think it sounds like, like, you know, your dad was obviously a very special human being, uh, just as a guy, as a man, uh, mm-hmm. it seems like, but he taught you, you guys had this affinity and love for basketball. And you shared that. And so, so many of life's lessons you learned through the game of basketball that he taught you. And so I just, I guess that felt like the, the best starting point yeah. Um, yeah. through all of this. And one of my favorite things that he said, I guess, to you was to don't tell people you're great, show them. Yep. That was, wow, that was one thing that we heard over and over again as kids, my sister and I was, don't tell people you're great, show them. And he would start saying that to my nieces and nephews because we were a little bit older than them. That was really his mantra in life. And and I think that paired with that, the first life lesson that I write about in the book that has its foundation set in the game was never let anyone win. And that is actually a life lesson that I apply to this day And not everyone agrees with that life lesson. It's been really interesting in nieces and nephews now, like on uh, on my my wife's side of the family, or kids with uh, friends with kids, and we're like playing, you know, basketball in the pool with like a Nerf or whatever. And if I'm if I'm capable of beating a kid, I'm not gonna like dominate them in an embarrassing way, but. I'm going to make sure that I win because I don't think that that is a great lesson to teach a kid that the confidence that they have on in something is based on a false foundation. And I think that pair and the reason I bring that up in conjunction with the don't don't tell people you're great, show them was that I was able to live that philosophy because by the time I got good at things, it wasn't a false good and the confidence I had wasn't a false confidence. I knew right from the beginning that anything I won or any sense of uh, self-esteem I gathered from a game or a sport or an interaction was not was not a facade. It wasn't fake meant to build meant to build me up. And that's been one of the core pillars of of like my own self-esteem, my own confidence is knowing it came from a very hard won, authentic place, especially on the basketball court. Right. And I so agree with that too, because especially nowadays, we talk all the time about kids, you know, getting um, participation trophies and, you know, everyone being rewarded. And it is our failures that make us understand our successes and appreciate our successes along the way. So I totally, totally hear that. And I mean, I don't know how much I can like give away and go into it because like I'm like, I want to dive all the way in. But like, you know, some other uh, lessons, you know, last dribble being like you'll make your last dribble the hardest and what you give the ball, the ball gives back to you. So I'd love for you to kind of talk to talk to that point yeah. a little bit. You know, and and the interesting thing for me about these eight life lessons that I sprinkle throughout the book is that my dad was obsessed with basketball. 
And a lot of the things he taught me, I honestly don't think that he meant for them outside of the game of basketball. I think he truly was thinking about how to make me a better basketball player. That was something I wanted to be. Some of them I knew were about more than basketball. But in this book, I share the lessons and how I applied them. And not necessarily what, you know, he might not have meant them as like transcendent life lessons, but I certainly took them that way. And one of them was the one you mentioned, this idea of make your last dribble the hardest. And for for your listeners who aren't big basketball fans, this lesson, you don't need to use it on the basketball court, but it does have its foundation there in that one of the things I learned as a kid was that if you're going to shoot, you know, if you're if you're dribbling and then you're going to shoot a pull up jumper you really have to take that last dribble and like pound it into the ground so that the ball creates enough momentum. You create enough momentum in the ball that like you're in your shooting motion. But that applied to me. I started and I thought about this all of the time. Once my dad said, make your last dribble the hardest, make your last dribble the hardest. I would think about that on the court and off the court. It would play in my mind. And it started to mean to me when I got away from the game and out in the quote unquote real world, it was so clearly applicable that you want to create momentum in in life for whatever your next move is. And that's what that life lesson was about, was making sure that there are some things that you don't want to be reaching back for. And then, you know, you lose, you break a sense of rhythm and momentum and you you really want to be forward thinking and create that. Uh, that energy that propels you forward. And so that's how I've used it my whole life. And and it still rings in my mind, even if it's about leaving one job for another and making sure that I'm doing it in the proper way. I'm always like, make your last trouble the hardest. That's just how I think about it. I I love that so much. And as it pertains, you know, yeah, we've talked a lot about basketball already. And and so much of the book does talk about basketball, but this is truly a book for everyone. So if you've never played a game of basketball in your life or even watched one, (laughs) let alone, uh, you know, it's just there's life lessons throughout the entire book that anyone can relate to. And as you mentioned, it's a love letter from you to your dad. Um, And it's a story about about growing up. It's Mm -hmm. about this incredible relationship that you had with him. And then it's about Kate becoming Kate, you becoming you. And, you know, you moved away and you went to Colorado State for basketball, which happened to be far away from where you grew up in New York. Um, and and feeling like you made that decision on your own. And it maybe put a, a, a space in between you and your dad. But I think so yeah. many people can relate to what you talk about in the book in terms of this space that we sometimes create with people that we love. And it doesn't mean that we love them any less, um, but life gets in the way and we get busy growing up and we get busy living life. And, and so that space draws a wedge between us sometimes. And, you know, as your dad fell ill, unfortunately, and ALS is such a, a horrible disease. It was a, in an oxymoron of a way, a beautiful way to bring you back, uh, to connect that space again. Yeah. And I think though, that space that you talk about, I have yet to meet someone even before I wrote this book who hasn't experienced that in the most valuable relationships in their life. And I think growing up, even if you had, you know, if you're lucky enough, like I was to have 
mom and dad who both loved spending time with us and poured themselves into us, life will have a way of denting those relationships. And you, I mean, you, you put it so eloquently, like creating space in, in them. And I think even if you've never played basketball, you can relate to that notion that there's always a relationship in your life. And I still have some in my life now where I, I have that thing in the back of my mind that says, oh, like there's still some unresolved something with so-and-so. And sometimes this comes up for me in, as it did for my dad, even right after he got diagnosed, I was in a workout in New York City and it was a very cardio based workout. And that, and at the end of it and during it, all that was playing on my mind was you have got to fix your relationship with dad. It would, it, it, it's something about like a really intense workout can just strip you away. And then your mind, it just puts that idea there and there's nothing, you don't have any energy to be able to, to like block it. And so that had been there with my dad before he got ALS. I knew I had made mistakes along the way, like everyone does as they're growing up. I had said things I shouldn't have said. I had sent an email I shouldn't have said. I, there had been a number of things piling up and we, we weren't estranged in any way at all. And this is, I think a lot of people can relate to this. It's not as if we didn't talk. I didn't see, I mean, he called me twice a day, but we weren't talking about the things we needed to be talking about. And that, that knowing, that deep knowing that we were meant to be more existed before the disease. And then the disease really forced me to look at it. And even then, it still took me two years to say the things I needed to say, because that's how I think that's how sticky some of these relationships are. There's so much love there or nostalgia or there's so much of everything there. If you're talking about a childhood relationship that you still have, it's just there is just so much to work through. And. I mean, I feel lucky enough to have gotten to a place where I had the time with him, even though we had the shadow of ALS, to talk through these things and restore that relationship. I think it, by the end, restore it to what it could have been all along. But to even reach that place at all, I think, is a is a, a stroke of good luck. I love that. A stroke of good <laughs> luck in the midst of all of that. And yeah. yeah, that's kind of the one of the big messages I want to share in this this episode today is a yes, read the book, but B have these hard conversations, have yeah. these hard conversations because there are so many people that we love or care about, or a rift has happened, or maybe a rift never happened, but you never yeah. really let them know what they mean to you. And so yeah. you finally said, let's go for a drive mm -hmm. to your dad. And then you were like, you just laid it all on the table and, and let him know all, how much he meant to you and the things that you needed to get off your chest. And I just think uh, that that is what life is all about. Yeah. That's what it's supposed to be. And there's a specific quote that I had written down. Um, it's important to have hard conversations with people you love, come clean, clear the air and let them know what they mean to you. Yeah. And what I learned in the process of my dad's illness was that even though we did have, I, I was like, we need to go for a drive. And it was right the day before I was getting married. And we did have like one big heart to heart. One thing I learned about that was that that one big heart to heart was, was the result of 
two years before that of putting myself around him more and small moments of vulnerability, like touching his hand a little bit longer. And I share that because I think before my dad got sick, I really did have this belief that one big moment of inspiration would fix everything. And I think this is something a lot of people do believe is if there's a rift or even as you so eloquently said, maybe it's not a rift. Maybe you just have never really articulated their value to you and you know you need to. Most of the time, if it is a rift, you can't fix it in one moment. And I think people like and I thought this before I was like, one, the universe will never let me not know that I need to do this. Right. The universe will make sure I do this. That's definitely not true. It will not make sure necessarily. And then, two, I can fix it in one interaction. And I think to me that it makes sense why we think this, because I think as a writer, I've often thought, uh, okay, I'm going to write a book, but I just need to wait until I get the cabin in the woods with the candles and the two weeks of uninterrupted time. And that's when I'll be able to do this magical thing instead of realizing, oh, no, this is like small chunks. You sit down for 30 minutes, 30 minutes, 30 minutes. And that's how magical things happen. And in that same way, I think how magical things happen in a relationship is the same principle. Like you sit down, you, you, you send the small little text, you touch their hand briefly. And that was the big lesson I took away too from this whole process was like, if you think there's someone that you need to connect with, don't wait for the big magical moment that you think might happen five years from now, just send the small quick text right now. Just like, Hey, hi, I'm thinking of you. Maybe that's one small little thing. It's not going to fix everything, but it's a small little step toward being vulnerable around people. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I feel like I say that after everything. Every time you stop talking, you're like, yeah, I love that. Cause (laughs) it's true. I love it. Um, but, and I have so many points that I could take from that. And, and also thank you for the advice because I've been working on writing a book for quite some time now. And, and I did get over that part where it's like, you need all everything to be right in order for it to happen. But that's also very similar to the idea that like, once I have a relationship, I'll be happy. Or once I have this certain job, I'll be happy or whatever it is for anyone who's listening um, that we do all the time. We think we have to reach these certain benchmarks in order to find happiness, but we have to find the happiness or find the the gumption to do what we want to do in the moment where we're at, um, even if it is in small chunks. And it's just your dad was obviously in in so many ways your hero. And I feel like I would be remiss in this episode to not just shout out my own dad, uh, who is my hero. Uh, and I, (laughs) without trying, without crying, I'll try not to, um, you know, just tell a brief story about my relationship with my dad. And so my biological father, I met once when I was two. Um, and then, my dad, my my mom, when she was pregnant with me. And she was like, you don't want to hitch your wagon to this cart. Like I'm pregnant. Like, you know, don't worry. You don't want to be a part of this. And he was like, no, I do. And then he was in the room when I was born, when I came into this world. And he has been the most incredible father figure my entire life and never treated me like I was anything but his own. And they're now separated. Uh, he I never skipped a beat. 
you know, my sister is younger than me five years. And there were certain points when he would pick her up on weekends and he, there was not a single weekend where he didn't pick up both of us, where he didn't take both of us. And he has stepped in and been like my dad for my whole life. And so just want to shout out my dad real quick. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's beautiful. I, cause I think at the, one of the, you know, you have lots of hopes for a book, but with this one, you know, there, there, there were hopes about, you know, connecting with the ALS community. But one of the big ones was celebrating father-daughter relationships. And I think being a child of the 90s and post-Title IX, when sports were something that, at least when I was in high school in the late 90s, like, cool in a way that they'd never been before. And I think those connections between fathers and daughters led to a different kind of connection with anyone born after Title IX than we've seen before. Uh, there are just so many dynamic father-daughter relationships that don't necessarily get as much shine in like the public mainstream, you know, storytelling conversation. Yeah, totally. And I, I really did love, you know, and it led to ultimately your you playing in sports and and your career uh, as an ESPN journalist and you know the the many shows that you hosted and and. Uh, I just think back to your dad playing rec basketball. And at a certain point, you know, you were only allowed to play the game if somebody didn't show up. Mm -hmm. And at a certain point, your dad put the kibosh on that and was like, Kate's going to play all the games now. Yeah. Kate's yes. <laughs> and then like, I, that's still kind of like, well, it makes me smile, makes me miss him. But, and it wasn't like I was like 17 then when he did, when he did this, he walked into a pickup game in whatever it was, 1994, and I'm 12, 13 years old, and he just says to the guys, yeah, Kate's playing from now on every week, every time we're here. End of story. And all of the guys just, because he was the best, you know, he's the best player, and he's awesome, and they're like, okay. And from then on, anywhere we went, I was playing in the game. And I just, that's a special thing for him to have done and for me to have grown up in a world, at least my little world that I was in where I didn't think that women were undervalued. I, I didn't think that female athletes and women's sports were disparaged because the little pocket of world I was in was oh, men and women who were invested in us, both emotionally, financially, all of that. They were invested and they thought we were amazing. And that was a gift and I don't think we can replicate that anymore with like comments and social media and all of that. Like, I think that was a time when I could play and the world around me could give me value. And I didn't have to necessarily absorb the outside, the outside, um, you know, criticisms or comments. And it was like the, that really drove a lot of how I felt about myself and how I felt about the world. Right. Yeah, yeah. definitely played an made an impact on how you showed up in sports and how you showed up yeah as a person as a human being yeah. let alone being a woman in sport a female an athlete uh, a female athlete so i mean that's just powerful in and of itself uh and can i ask you though what what yeah. what book are you writing maybe your listeners already know uh they don't know too much um currently the working title is get to the other side okay and it is just a book about the constant hills, mountains that we climb and this idea that we have to live our own life, write our own story, and that there is a view at the top of your mountain that was unequivocally met for your eyes only. But if we don't, 
block out everybody else and what everyone else is doing and focus on our story and focus on our journey and focus on the purpose and the reason that we're here and what we're here to do, we might never see that view at the top of our mountain. So just understanding just about the climb all of the time and what happens when we get to the top and the joy ride down the backside of the mountain. And then knowing that we do that over and over and over again in this life. So you take a pause at the top, you take in the view, and then you begin again. You go down and you start again at the bottom and doing that over and over. But everything that we we go through and everything we face is about just getting to the other side, whether it's small hurdles we face in our everyday lives or the big ones. I like that. Sounds like a book I want to read because I think that that's a perfect way of putting it is like the the repeated climb to the top and even the pausing, whatever the top means, but even the freedom to pause is something that I struggle with understanding how to even be in those moments. Like I'm much better at knowing I have some goal and being able to chip away at it, but not knowing what to do when I can't define myself by the goal. And I think even just that you briefly saying, you know, and I, I don't know which part of you, you know, if it's part of your book, like even when I get to the top of whatever my mountain is, a lot of times I don't even pause there. I'm just like, okay, where's the, what are we doing next? And I think that's something I try to, I'm not good at that. I, it just like, it's tough for me to not have a mountain I'm climbing all of the time as like a distraction or something. Yeah, I I totally feel that. I totally relate too. But yeah, I think I just, I find that there's, you know, we've talked a couple of times now about how we're just onto the next thing or we think we need that next thing to bring us happiness, to bring us joy, to bring us fulfillment in life. And when we get to the top, there's, there's, there's like a lot of different things that I feel like we're actually meant to do at the top. And when you get there, like part of that is looking backwards and being like, oh shit, I just came that far. I just did that. And being proud of ourselves because it is so hard, I feel like, to be proud of ourselves because we just fixate on the next target. And we forget that so many of the things that we have in our life right now in this moment, we prayed for, or we wished for, or we hoped for, and we forget, we forget. And so it just ended up being one of those things. I'm a soul cycle instructor and it just ended up being one of those things. It's always a metaphor. It's funny because, you know, I feel like so much of your dad's life or the way you understand it anyways was like a metaphor between the game and life. But I always draw parallels. I'm like a huge parallel. Like I love that. And so when I'm teaching a class, I'm like everything that you do on the bike is so similar to everything that you do in your life. It's just putting one foot in front of the other. And sometimes we're on a fast jog and we're, we're you know, going super fast. And, it, and then other times it's super heavy and we're climbing a really gritty hill and you're just like in the thick of it. But no matter how fast we go or how slow you go, it's the same exact thing. It's still one foot in front of the other. All right. So here's something I haven't, I'm not sure what the metaphor is, but when you were talking, I was thinking about the hiking I did growing up in near the Adirondacks and how whenever we hike to the top, we always obviously came back down. And during the going down process, I would think so often that, wow, I climbed that. And, you know, you'd go through a particularly tough like grade and you'd be like, wow, that was so hard. And you would like, I remember giving myself credit and living on the way down, living in like, I just completed this challenge and like giving myself kudos. And I don't do that at all. 
in the way I approach life. Maybe it's because you don't physically go back down and you get to like retrace the journey. You just sort of like look toward the horizon. But I remember the going down process being very validating. And I have no parallel to that in my life. Right. I think a lot of people can probably relate to that. And that's, that's, that is the parallel, just yeah. thinking of those moments, right? And then yeah. just reminding ourselves as we're trying to conquer anything in our lives that it, it's always very much similar to that. It's always yeah. so similar to that. And maybe it just needs to be like a metaphorical walking down the mountain that we have to do. Like you can't actually do it, but whatever the parallel is, be allow yourself to retrace the steps mentally and like just live in the gratitude and gratification of what you've done. Cause that's not something I ever take time to do. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit too about your career at ESPN and a year before your dad passed, you quit your job to be there for him and for your mom and your sister um, and, and help for, you know, with taking care of him. But there was something that you said, which is that you were addicted to the reinforcement cycle. And while you did quit your job for reasons to be with your family. It was also something at that time was kind of tugging on your heartstrings that it was your time to move on from ESPN, even though you'd accomplished so much. And so many people would be like, that's insane. Why would you leave this incredible position that you're in? But I think a lot of people feel that and go through that where they're just like, they're doing well and everything's right. And they've got all these boxes checked and their career is 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 in a good place, uh, but they kind of feel like they're ready to move on to their next chapter, ready to do their own thing. And just what that experience was like for you in terms of walking away from that. I knew when I was at ESPN, before my dad's diagnosis, I knew that I was making decisions based on the tangential benefits of the job. I, I didn't know I liked being on ESPN and have, you know, go to a sports bar out for dinner and someone be like, Hey, are you on ESPN? It's not something that I thought I would like until it starts happening. And then you're like, Oh, like the people I'm with think I'm cool now. And so there was all these tangential benefits to working at ESPN that started. I don't know whether I valued them or whether I had to value them more than they were actually worth because the satisfaction of the job was dropping off for me. And so, because I think humans don't want to initiate change necessarily unless they are forced to, I just started telling myself, you know, the money matters too much, the allure of ESPN, the ability to say I work at ESPN, like all of these things started to hold more value than they actually, they're actually worth. And there was so that was one that was one factor i was becoming disillusioned with my choices and with my inability to actually respond to what my body was telling me which is you know this isn't necessarily what you want to be doing anymore and my dad's diagnosis you, you would you would hope would have been like one day you know there's one day he's diagnosed and then very soon after i make changes to my life and i think that's how we I think that's how we res- we think that happens. Maybe it's how it's messaged to us in movies and in other media that someone has a diagnosis, you rearrange your life immediately. I don't think that that's the reality for a lot of people. I think these decisions like are spread out over time. 
And for me, that was certainly the case. It was two years between my dad being diagnosed and then me leaving ESPN. Two years of like knowing. Not only was my dad sick with a terminal illness, but I didn't really want to be doing what I was doing anymore. And yet it took two years. And one of the things, one additional thing about ESPN that I think people can relate to on a parallel was that when I had first started at ESPN and first started doing TV at ESPN, I, I, I could acknowledge to myself that going on as a talking head to talk about LeBron wasn't holding, it wasn't changing the world. And it wasn't, it wasn't holding a, a ton of intrinsic value for me. But I told myself, okay, if you do this thing, every time you get a chance to talk about female athletes and to change that equation, because everyone in, in the in the media world, we all we all know this statistic that of all sports media, only two to four percent is about women. And so I was like, okay, so yes, I'm gonna talk about LeBron and be a gas bag over here about LeBron. But every time I win a show or I have an opportunity, I'm going to change that equation. And I did that for the first year or two. And then this thing started to happen where every time I talked about female athletes, my Twitter mentions would be like, you know, go home. Nobody cares. Get back in the kitchen. And even in production meetings, pitching stories about female athletes and women's sports it was an uphill climb and the feedback even in those production meetings were like, no. And I just let it go. So I, so that was part of my own disillusionment with myself was I had made a pact with myself that I would be about something. And then it became harder than I wanted it to be. And I was like, you know what, whatever, pay me the money. I'll talk about LeBron and my life will be easier. And maybe it was easier, but I started to not like who who was making those decisions. And I didn't want to be the person making those decisions, even if it seemed easier, it was harder internally. And that was that was happening alongside and then my dad getting diagnosed. And it was like a combination of all of those things. I was like, I need to be about more than this. And I need to make decisions that actually fuel my humanity. And so that was like that, that collision of all of those things. Yeah. And it was, it was a courageous decision because you could have probably, I mean, I don't, I'll never actually know, but you probably could have kept on figuring out how to do both and keep burning the candle at each end. And you could have figured it out and you could have done it. But I guess my message out there to anyone listening is that, Sometimes we have to have the courage to walk away from things, even when everything looks like or seems like it's going right. Yep. Yeah. And I'll add to that, too, that we have this idea like, oh, uh, like you you got off track or you you left the career ladder as if that's the only one that exists. And that if you get off of whatever ladder track you're on, that you have to come back either where you were or behind if you ever want to come back. That's not true at all. All of these are like lies we tell ourselves. I mean, I think you can leave and you can go be a human and do human things and not be worried about success 
if that's the season of your life that you're in. And if you're lucky enough to be able to make those things happen, and then you can, if there's another season of your life where you're like, but I want to get back on something, right? Like I have some sort of career pursuit. You can be ahead of that track that you were on. You can jump three spots ahead, maybe because you learned a great lesson when you were away being a real full present human and people value that. So I think that this, the fear we have about leaving something and stopping something as if we'll never get it again and it'll never be that good. I don't know where that messaging exactly comes from, but I believed it and it's incredibly not true. I mean, I've, I've said that same thing and felt that same thing in many, I mean, in a lot of my chapters already in my life, I feel like. And, you know, cause I was, I, I picked like a, you know, my, my career is like in fitness. So, you know, I've got at the time, like when I was pursuing this, I'm like, you know, I've got like my grandmother being like, how are you going to make a living off doing fitness? You know, mm-hmm. and everybody telling me that. And, and then thinking to myself, like, well, you know, at certain points, like, well, what if I can't? Number one. And number two, seeing everybody I graduated college with who was out there crushing it or doing, you know, climbing the ladder, you know, at their nine to five. And like, that was their choice. So like, hell yeah, good for them. Amazing. But there was definitely a part of me that's like, okay, I believe in myself, but like, how much do I really believe in myself? Because as they're climbing and I'm, I'm feeling like I'm staying down here and they're, they're reaching and higher levels. It was like, well, what if this doesn't work out? And then I start at the bottom when I could have started a long time ago at this level. But it isn't true. Just yeah. because you did a different thing doesn't mean you can't even come out on like higher. Like it's it, none of it is like linear. I think it was like Steve Jobs who said, uh, like life is not linear. You only connect the dots looking backwards, not looking forwards. Yep. Yeah. So, and people just bounce around. And yeah. you said that in the book as well. And it was in a different context, but uh, hopscotch. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think I, maybe we absorb that message because so much of like school feels like a ladder. Yeah, that's probably true. And we become very comforted by the existence of, I remember feeling this when I was done playing college basketball. It was like, up until then, nothing was confusing to me about how to, how to like get ahead. It, it was hard work, but I knew I was like, okay, I have to practice every day. And then I play AAU and then in school you take the SATs and then it just, everything felt like not confusing. You weren't like, did I make the wrong decision? Because it was like, no, it was laid out for you. It was laid out for you. And I remember being terrified when all of that was gone. Cause I was like, well, if I take this job in Washington state, what if I'm on this complete path? That's the wrong path. And I think a lot of us get, and then we get caught up in that thinking that post, you know, education life should look linear and ladder like, and, and that's when that's not the case, you really, I think it's empowering once you wrap your mind around it, but it can be terrifying in the beginning. Yeah. And bringing it all back in is just knowing when it's time, when you've reached, when you've reached the top of your own ladder, not yeah. the ladder that someone else is trying to place in front of you at whatever career, you know, company you're working at. It's like, you are the one, you are the ladder, you hold the rungs, like not the company you work for. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's a powerful thing for people to think about. Um, and so to to shift gears just like a tiny bit, um, you went to, I believe it was a uh, psychic medium. I want to say her name was Donna. Did I get that right? Uh, Dana. Close, Dana. Close, yes. Okay. Um, and she was kind of, so this was before your dad passed. I know you went again after, um, but 
And this was the idea of the lessons that were put on this earth to learn. And that the idea that each and every one of us is put here for a reason. And we each have our own specific lesson to learn and what your dad's lesson was and, you know, how ALS played a role in, in him being on the basketball court and being a guy who never gave up and instilled that in you. And that was the, that was who he was all of his life is never giving up. Um, I don't know if we can talk too much about it. Cause I, like I said, I don't want to give too much away on the book. No, but this is a, I think this is an important part of it. And, and, and I'll, and I'll preface it by saying that these are, this was my way of dealing with it and trying to understand meaning from a diagnosis like ALS, which is locked in syndrome, hundred percent fatal, no treatments, there was a period of time in dealing with understanding what this disease is and like that question of why that I think so many of us face. I just felt it was cruel beyond measure. And I had this lingering question, like, why does the world even have this disease? And in talking in trying to approach it from a more spiritual perspective, uh, Dana, who's an empath, she just, she switched my thinking on it. And she said, well, you know, if your dad had gotten something else with hope where you could have treatment and, and he could live and it could be cured, could he ever learn the lesson of surrender? And I was like, there's no chance he would ever learn that lesson. Never. And I didn't even think with ALS he would ever learn that lesson because he was just so athlete mentality of I'll never give up. And, and looking at never giving up as a positive which I had also adopted having an athlete mentality that giving up, surrendering, all of that was like a weakness. And I think, as I say in the book, that anytime we do these things, stop, give up, surrender, that we become a weaker version of ourselves. And Dana really switched my thinking on this because she was trying to articulate to me that she believed, and I don't think I ever got him to fully believe this, but she believed that he came, one of the reasons he was on the earth was to learn the lesson of surrender. And that we can think that the lessons we're supposed to learn in this life should be one-to-one. Like freedom should look like, you know, we're living a life on the open water and the beach and we never have any constraints. When really, if you want to learn the lesson of freedom, you have to have, you know, been constrained or been imprisoned. And then you will truly understand what freedom means. And again, I, 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 there's the caveat of my dad in, at some points thought this was all bullshit, right? He was just so focused on the awfulness of the disease and he wasn't trying to understand lessons until I think the very, very end. But I came to believe that, and I, and I still feel this way now, that surrendering is an incredibly powerful move. And I never would have thought myself, I mean, thought that I would be someone who would say that. And it doesn't, being able to surrender when my body needs it, when my mind needs it, when my soul needs it, doesn't change the fact that most of the time I'm still willing to go hard and push myself. But I also now I'm like, no, I need to incorporate this other facet. I need to be able to push hard, but I also need to be able to like stop sometimes. Like sometimes I'll, I would never have done this before, but sometimes I'll start a workout and I'll be like eight minutes in and my body's just like, we don't want to do this today. And right. I just 
turn off the app or whatever I'm doing or the bike and I just get off it or I stop. And I'm like, that's not what I need today. Instead of just pounding the pavement relentlessly. And that was definitely a lesson from my dad, even though he never really believed it himself, but I learned through the whole process. Yeah. Yeah. And we, we do that. We're really hard on ourselves, so hard on ourselves and we don't want to give up and we don't want to quit. And then especially in terms of when you're, what you're talking about in terms of like a workout, then especially we're hard on ourselves. Like, you know, a million thoughts might race through some of our minds about like, you know, getting, making that workout and getting it in and checking that off the list. But like, yeah, sometimes like you're like, no, this is not what I need today. Yeah. And that's cool. And like having the strength and the courage and conviction to just be like, that's cool. And that's fine. But with whatever it is. Um, So surrendering and vulnerability are some of our strongest traits, even though they uh, are synonymous with weakness in our society, unfortunately. So I found a lot of power in in that, in the, in that sentiment in the book as well. Um, So another thing that you talk about is uh, the world is beautifully ordinary at most times. Mm -hmm. That was one thing you said, Um, little moments becoming big moments. And so I say that a lot in my soul cycle classes is like, it's the little things that become the big things when they're gone tomorrow and not taking life for granted and not taking, you know, someone's touch for granted or taking just all of these, the wind on your face and the sun, you know, beating on your skin or whatever it is, not taking those things for granted. Um, and it's, it's hard to do when we're in the day to day and we're in the busy life and hustle and bustle, but, you know, through the experience that you went through and the journey that you went through, you know, do you live your life now more intentionally? Yeah. I think what was, one takeaway from just the disease of ALS being that, you know, you lose all, you lose all motor function, you lose muscle communication from firing neurons to your muscles. So that means all of your muscles gradually shut down, including then your swallowing mechanism, your lungs, and eventually your heart. And I say that because it was so fascinating watching and talking to my dad about what, he missed. And of course it was like being able to wrap someone in a hug and going for a five mile run. Like he, he he definitely missed those things, but he would talk about these small things that like smushing a pillow. I will never forget when he said, imagine the fact that I can no longer manipulate and smush a pillow to the proper depth. And I think about this every night. And, and I, and I encourage, I encourage listeners, like next time you're like curling up to your pillow, pay attention to how much you like, you press on it, you move it, you shift your arm, you shift your shoulder, tiny miniature movements, because the proper depth and smush of a pillow is actually very valuable and rewarding. And the, like last night I, I was counting and it was something like, you know, 23 movements I made to get the pillow smushed properly. And I say all this and I'm so emphatic about it because once, and I, and I'm not suggesting that we should all pay attention to that granular detail all of the time. I don't think that that's what we're meant to do, but I think one moment out of the day when you just feel blessed at the simple fact, as my dad said, like, 
adjusting your waistband to how you like it. Like these are, these are tiny things that we trample over because we need to, because our existence is bigger, both physically and emotionally and spiritually than, than those tiny things. But acknowledging the amazingness of being able to manipulate your pillow is something I do all of the time now. And I think that that readjustment in how I look at life has been the most important lesson for me coming out of my dad's death and that disease was just, you know, this is a cliche, but like pure gratitude for everything that comes across that I should be grateful for from the smallest thing that I just spent three minutes articulating to you to the biggest thing, like having a partner who I adore. I mean, I don't think, I don't think before my dad's illness, I was necessarily someone who was like counting off my, my gratitudes at the end of a day. And now I definitely am. Smushing a pillow. That's right. I'm going to say it again. I love that. Yeah. It's the simple things. And yeah, I, I think I just definitely wanted to bring that one up as well, that point up as well, because, uh, that's just a lesson we learn over and over and over again. And we hear over and over and over again throughout our lives is like, be grateful. Don't take things for granted. You know, we hear that all the time, right? But breaking it, breaking it down in such a way to something like that is, is like, it's just a granular, it's such a granular way to like, just really actually put ourselves in like what gratitude like actually can be. And it's not these giant, big, grandiose things. Oftentimes it's found in the beautiful ordinary. Yeah. And uh, one more thing that I'm insanely grateful for is that, again, and I think many of us should be, is that throughout human history, have, have any people like been allowed to like sleep with comfort and with like air conditioning slash heating? You know, the fact that I am someone who is lucky enough to be able to fall asleep at night in a comfortable bed and the these are all things that I think we get lost. They, they, they get lost. And like you were just, you were just saying like the big things I'm certainly thankful for, but like even living in 2020 and being, you know, being falling asleep in a place where we feel safe, if we're lucky enough to feel safe, we should be thinking that every single night when we fall asleep, if we're lucky enough to be safe and healthy and falling asleep, that's amazing. Yeah. I did. That's funny. Cause I said on my Instagram this morning, it was, I don't know why I just felt compelled to, to do so. I just, you know, you get on some, I mean, I don't know, you get on sometimes you flip the camera, you talk to yourself, but to mm-hmm. everyone else at the same time. And, uh, it was 6 45 AM. I was just about to start my class and I'm like, all right, alive, well, breathing. Yep. Any day you get to wake up and you get to check those three boxes means it's going to be a damn good day. That's right. Alive, well, breathing. And sometimes it's that simple checklist and coming back to that and being like, okay, cool. If I can check those things off my list, if I got up out of bed this morning, my feet hit the ground, I took a deep breath, I got up and I entered the world. Like, despite whatever is going on, we have the power to make it a great day just by checking those three boxes. You got it. That's right. Man, I feel like I could talk to you all day long. Um, thank you so much for writing this book. Uh, I feel like it 
in it will spark i know in me and i hope that it sparks in so many other people to live more purposefully to live more intentional intentionally to live more passionately i hope that it sparks people to tell the people that they love that they love them and not to wait to do so and to have the hard conversations and 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 have the easy conversations too just have yeah. all the conversations um and so please anyone out there get this book, all the colors came out. You, and and also beyond that, uh, send me a message and let me know what you thought. Because like I, I'm like oh, yeah. for a book club. I'm like I want to talk about it. It's just great. Um, so I think uh, one more question that I have for you. Uh, but the last thing that I'll say about the book is that ALS is a disease without hope but this is a memoir and a story full of hope. Well, thank you for such a close reading. Cause I think one of the things that I think can easily get lost in a book where it's about death and ALS is that if, if it, if those things aren't central in your life right then that it's too dark of a place to be. And this experience with my dad and looking back on the gift of a dad who shows up for you and loves and doesn't just love you, but likes you a lot. That's, that's a joyous, beautiful thing. And being able, we're all going to die and being able to, to live and then tell a story about making a relationship come alive at the end, just like it was at the beginning that's a love story. And that's in my mind, a joyful story because that's, that should be the hope that we all carry with us is that the people who have filled us and that we love are there for us, but there for us at the end. And we're able to say the things that we need to say to them and leave this world in a way where we know that we, we connected. And, and so in my mind, the book is, is all of those things and not like a scary book. And I'm just so glad that when you read it, you, you know, you felt some version of that as well. I totally did. And I just thought of one other perspective to share, which is for anyone out there who's listening, who doesn't have a good relationship with their dad, or maybe anyone out there who's lost their dad. Uh, to me, I think your dad, Big C, <laughs> can be a father figure that some people didn't have. And when you read this book, you can get those lessons and anybody who's missing their dad or anybody who didn't have that relationship, like Big C will be your dad too. That's the kind of guy he seems like he was. <laughs> He'd be pretty excited to hear that up in <laughs> up in reincarnation heaven or wherever he is now. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So last question that I ask everyone is uh, if you could give your former younger self uh, any piece of advice, what would it be? So there's, well, the first one definitely is I should have trusted other people more because, and that was for me, that answer is directly tied to, to coming out when I was in my early 20s and living before that for a couple of years where like I'm lying to people and I'm not trusting them and I'm damaging relationships because of that mm-hmm. and not trusting the people in my life and myself to be able to come together regardless of circumstances, regardless of where the world was at that time, like trusting that the love that we had for one another would see us through. 
that would be the main thing I would go back if you're, if you're talking to like 16 year old me, it's like, you should trust your dad. You should trust your mom, trust your family, trust your friends, because the damage you're going to do by not trusting them. And like that loss, it like, it will reverberate. And, and it did. And that didn't mean it was irreparable, but it definitely reverberated. Um, and then the smaller thing I would tell like 23 year old me is like, your sample size is not that big yet. You just stop spending like three hours on one email because you think, you know, like you think every little thing you do is going to have ripple effects from now until forever. I just wasted so much time worrying about, you know, like emails, conversations, phone calls that like, and now I, now, you know, you've had a hundred of them and you realize like, you just got to show up for people and, and be present and they'll, they'll, they'll understand who you are and you have to trust in that. So I guess they're all tied to trust. So yes, trust. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. Uh, Kate, thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate you. And it was a joy to have you on today. Thanks for reading the book and loving it. <laughs> so that was Kate Fagan. You guys follow her on Instagram at katefagan3 and make sure that you guys buy this book and maybe also buy it for somebody that you love. That is a challenge for you as well. Uh, There were so many key takeaways, so many moments that I related to and I think we can all relate to uh, within the context of what we just heard and what we just listened to. And I once again come back to having the courage to have hard conversations, having the courage to walk away from careers when you know it's time or, you know, whatever it is, relationships or, and having the courage to have hard conversations with people that you love and tell them what they mean to you because life is short and we should move through this life as intentionally and as purposefully as we possibly can because so often we just get to this place where we're just going, 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 and we forget to look up. We forget to see all that's happening around us. We forget to dial into these, as we said, beautifully ordinary moments. So I will leave you with that today. If you loved today's episode as much as I did, please tag me on Instagram, tag Kate on Instagram, tag at very best self, and let us know what your favorite takeaway was. Tell me what you also were inspired by uh, through the context of this episode. I'd love to hear from you. And uh, yeah. BB Squad, shout out, you guys. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for listening. You know the drill. Please, please give us five stars and leave a comment or review. Uh, You can also write there what this episode meant to you. Uh, And with that, you have an amazing day and I will see you soon. 